your Bibles, go to Jude, the book of Jude. We'll be looking, starting in verse 9 tonight. I told my wife this afternoon that uh, I believe the Lord led me to the book of Jude, but it's been hard for me because I feel like in a lot of ways it's kind of hard to nail some of the description, descriptions of these false teachers, these people that crept in unawares. It's kind of hard. It's kind of like nailing pudding to a wall. And um, I think the Lord gives us some, some interesting things to watch out for, and he gives us the characteristics and things to pay attention to, but... Um, studying it has been kind of difficult for me. I'm, a very, I'm very much like an A, B, C, D, step one, step two, step three, step four. That's the way my brain works. And studying through this, it's, I have felt like it hasn't been that way. But I want to read something to you that um, I read this week um, or last week, whenever it was. And then um, when I was studying uh, the book of Jude uh, over the last few weeks, uh, I thought of this article. This year, um, at Baylor University's graduation, a man prayed. And I want to read to you something he said in his prayer. Now, this is Baylor University, a Christian, quote-unquote, Christian university. And I want you to listen to what was prayed. God, speaking of the graduates, God, give them the moral imagination to reject the old keys that, we're, that we are trying to give them to a planet that we're poisoning by running it on fossil fuels and misplaced priorities, a planet with too many straight white men like me behind the steering wheel while others have been expected to sit quietly at the back of the bus, is what a man prayed is what a man prayed. Now, let me read to you who this man was. His last name was Freemeyer. It is crucial to know that Freemeyer serves as the missional engagement pastor at Broadway Baptist, a progressive congregation that in 2010 voted to leave the Baptist General Convention of Texas in a dispute over the moral status of homosexual behavior. Baylor University retains ties to that convention, and they also have ties to Broadway Baptist Church. Now listen to this. This is what the president of Baylor University came out and said. Like many of the attendees at one of the, at one of the May 18th, 2019 commencement ceremonies, I was caught off guard during the benediction as this prayer is intended to focus on the graduates as they leave Baylor University and make a mark around the world, not to communicate any kind of political statement. The prayer was not scripted by anyone within the university, and I am disappointed that it has distracted from a special moment for our graduates and the families attending commencement. Baylor typically allows a parent of one of the graduating students to offer the benediction during commencement, which is what occurred in this instance. We will review our internal procedures moving forward to ensure the benediction is offered as intended at future commencement ceremonies. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for the political statement, Mr. President. Where's the separation and taking a stand for righteousness and calling this guy out? But he doesn't do that. 
Not anywhere in his statement does he condemns what the man said. He doesn't disagree with the man. He doesn't quote any scripture. He doesn't stand for anything biblical. All he pretty much says is, in the future, we'll make sure we read or we make sure that, you know, we go through and make sure everybody says something that's kosher, and then we'll continue on with commencement. And ladies and gentlemen, the guy who prayed that prayer is a pastor at a church. Oh, stop. Shh. Sorry, my phone's talking to me. And honestly, that's what's going on in our pulpits today. That's what's going on in our country today. He is not the only one. I told Pastor that this on Monday, we were over at uh, Horse Tooth Reservoir there in Fort Collins doing some hiking and just spending the day together. And I'm driving back through Fort Collins and I passed the Islamic Center in Fort Collins. And right after that is another church. And on their church sign is a rainbow flag. I mean, their huge church sign out by the road has a rainbow flag on it. And that really, that is just one way, one thing that is sweeping across our country. And we're changing this book for the sake of, of that. And um, people are preaching. They're saying, I mean, what, whatever the arguments are. But ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's scary what... Christianity is embracing. It's scary what Christianity is allowing in the pulpits as a pastor or a pastorette or whatever you call them. Um, it's scary. I told somebody the other day that I personally believe that the fall of America will come at the hands of Christians. That's where I think it's going to come from. And, uh, and it, it's scary. It really is. And I think in the book of Jude, you find these false teachers. You find this Freemeyer or whatever. I, I think this book describes him perfectly and numerous others. And the reality is this. When you look at a book, like a book like the book of Jude, when you look at it, I think you have to be able to take the things that Jude gives us and apply them to people. You have to be able to pay attention to people, to somebody, whether it's an actual preacher or it's somebody that teaches a class or it's somebody that has a blog or it's somebody that you just go to church with, somebody that you meet at work, wherever it might be. I think you have to take these things and pay attention to the people who try to influence our lives and see if these characteristics match up. I think we have to be careful. We need to be on guard. And so we've been looking at the characteristics of these false teachers, and last time we finished up in verse 8, and, and I want you to think about the very last phrase there in verse 8. It says, and they speak evil of dignities. Now, this, this dignities is referring not to just earthly authority, but it's, it's referring to celestial beings. And we're going to see that kind of more here in a second, but it's referring to, honestly, a war, a battle that we can't see. And these guys just spout off, they just, they speak evil of these dignities. And, um, but if you look at verse number nine, it says, yet Michael. So the first thing I want you to think about tonight is the example of Michael. And so these false teachers, these guys, they just run their mouth, they speak evil or blasphemies against these authorities, these dignities, these positions of power. But then in verse nine, we have yet Michael. Yet Michael, notice his position, the archangel, archangel, he's the head angel. 
He has a position. He has power. He is in a place of authority. It says, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. The Lord rebuke thee. I want you to think about a couple things when it comes to this example of, my, of Michael. And the example really is this, that Michael, regardless of the position that he had, did not get into a verbal battle with Satan himself. Instead, he stepped back and said, you know what? The Lord rebuke you. I'm gonna let God take care of you. Instead of me trying to sit here and fight you, I'm gonna let God deal with you. And the, the thing is, is that these false teachers are not that way. They take it upon themselves to rebuke anybody and everybody, to, to say what they think about anybody and everybody. And they, they just, it, the words just fly. They're just constantly talking badly about anybody and everything all the time. So notice this. Number one, Michael had a position. He was the archangel. But I want you to notice something else. Notice it says he was contending. Contending. This word contending means to separate or to discern. You know, when you discern, you decide between two different things. And they're having somewhat of an argument. And so um, the first thing I want you to think about is this, is he's contending. Do you realize that there is a spiritual battle going on that you and I cannot see? We can't see it. There is a war going on. You could go to 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 13 through 18. I think they're gonna throw it up here. But there, um, it, verse 13 says this, and he said, go and spy where he is that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him saying, behold, he is in Dothan. Talking about Elisha. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And the servant said unto him, alas, my master, how shall we do? So here, in the middle of the night, this army surrounds the city. Elisha and his servant are trapped. The, the servant wakes up and he says, oh no, what are we gonna do? We're surrounded. There's no escape. And in verse 16, Elisha answered, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Can you imagine what that was? I mean, can you imagine the sight where his eyes are open and all of a sudden he sees God's army on the hills there to defend him and Elisha? Ladies and gentlemen, that happens all day, every day. That battle is raging. That battle is raging. Ephesians chapter six tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There is a spiritual battle warring, and here Michael, the archangel, is contending with Satan. It's interesting, John R. Rice wrote a book called Cowboy Boots in Darkest Africa. And in that book, he talks about being on a bus with other preachers on this missions trip. They're going through Africa, and their bus broke down. But the interesting thing is, is that their bus broke down in an area where the natives were extremely hostile. I think they might have been cannibals. So that night, some stayed up, and they all slept in the bus. I mean, uh, some kept watch, and um, so they slept the night in that bus. Well, eventually, they ran into that Indian tribe. They ha were having a conversation with those Indians, and they said, we had you surrounded that night. 
and we were ready to attack. And John R. Rice and the missionaries, they said, well, why didn't you attack? And they said, because of the soldiers. And John R. Rice, in his book, says, we were like, what soldiers? We weren't traveling with any security or anything. And God had set a watch around that bus. Um, if you ever read the story of David Brainerd, who was a missionary to uh, Native American Indians, uh, I believe in the Northeast, here in the United States, there's a story in his biography where he was, I mean, he left life. David Brainerd abandoned everything and went to the middle of nowhere to reach American Indians. And he was in an area where, once again, the Indians were hostile. And as it was his habit, he would go into the woods to pray. And he had this one spot where there was a stump, and he would kneel at that stump, get on his knees, and he would pray at that stump. And the story is, is that while he was praying, a poisonous snake came up by his head and was ready to strike these Indians were watching him in the woods. They watched that snake come up and then leave. And he eventually reached those Indian people because of that account. Because they, they saw something different in his God than their gods, if you will. And so, ladies and gentlemen, there is a battle going on. Michael was contending with the devil himself. And what's interesting is that word devil means blasphemer. It is he is diabolical. He is the slanderer. He's the slanderer. I literally, I personally believe that the devil being who he is, the slanderer that he is, I personally believe that the devil was attacking Michael and was calling Michael names and was attacking and slandering Michael. And Michael stepped back and said, you know what? I'm not going to get into a name-calling battle. I'm not going to play your little game, Satan. I'm going to let the Lord take care of you. And you know, it's kind of like our politicians so many times. If they, can't, if they can't win off the issues, they attack the person. They attack the person. And it's no more about the actual issues that need to be solved and figured out. Now it becomes, well, I'm going to slander you so you look worse than me, so that way hopefully everybody else will vote for me. That's the way our politics operate now. And I personally believe that's what was happening with Satan and Michael. And Michael stepped back and said, I'm done. The Lord, the Lord can deal with you. The Lord can deal with you. Um, so it says he durst not bring a railing accusation against the devil. And that durst not means he dared not. He said, whoa, I'm hitting the brakes. This is over. And, you know, I thought, I thought of Proverbs um, chapter 26, verses 5 and 6, which say, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. So answer a fool according to his folly, but listen to verse six. He that sendeth a message by the hand of a fool, I'm sorry, that's not it. I think verse four says, answer not a fool according to his folly. So Proverbs 26, I think verse four says, answer not a fool according to his folly, but then verse five says, answer a fool according to his folly. Is God contradicting himself? No, he's saying there's a time and there's a time not to answer a fool. There's a time when you need to put a fool in his place and there's a time when you need to back off and just leave him be and let God sort it out. And I think that's where Michael was with Satan. He just stepped back and said, the Lord rebuke thee. The Lord rebuke thee. And the, the difference here is that these false teachers don't give that place to God. They take it all upon themselves. They take it all upon themselves. I've been in some deacon meetings before, not here, 
thankfully. I really am. I'm thankful that it's not like this here. But I've been in some deacon meetings where you have like that one guy that feels like it's his job to do all the talking. And he just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And all he does is talk and talk and talk and give his opinions about every little thing. He just goes on and on. And it's always interesting to me. There's always one older man who's super quiet. And when he's finally done talking, that older man says like two words that are just jaw-dropping. And everybody's like, yeah, that's exactly what we need to do. Leave him alone. That's what what we need to do. But um, that kind of thing always amazes me. And um, in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter calls these false teachers presumptuous. And one thing I want you to think about in this example of Michael is Michael does not presume to either know it all or to have the power to combat Satan himself. He does not presume to have this authority or this power, whereas these false teachers presume that they know it all or that they have it all figured out or that they have the right to pass this sort of judgment. But they don't. They don't. And you know, in our lives, don't be presumptuous. Don't be presumptuous. Um, my dad, my dad was probably an extreme non-presumptuous person. When I was a kid, I'd go to my dad and I'd say, hey dad, can I go see if Keith can play? I had this neighbor down the street named Keith. And this is what my dad would say. If Keith wanted to play, he would come ask you. And I'd be like, okay, whatever. Well, finally, I got old enough, and it started clicking. And finally, I looked at my dad. I said, Dad, what if his dad says, if Wesley can play, he'll come ask you? I said, we're both stuck. And I finally found the loophole in what my dad was saying. But my dad was very, very unassuming, very, very much not a presumptuous person. And you know, the Bible talks about that idea of being presumptuous. In Luke 14, verse 8, it says, when thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come to say thee, give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when thou uh, when, when he that badest thee, or bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalted himself shall be abased, and he that humble himself shall be exalted. You know, it's kind of like when you go to a wedding, you have, spot, you have the front two sides where the families sit, right? You have one for the, for the groom, you have one for the bride, and those rows are usually reserved for the, for the wedding. Could you imagine if it was your son or your daughter getting married, and you get there at the front, at the back doors, and you start down the aisle with one of the ushers or whoever it is as the parents or grandparents, and you get down there, and all of a sudden there's like these hillbillies sitting in your seats, and you're like, who are you? And they're like, hey, we're just here for the wedding. Yeah, but you don't belong there. Can you imagine how embarrassing it would be if somebody came up and said, Excuse me, but you have to move to the back. This is for the family. That presumption that I'm okay here, I can can sit here. And here Jesus gives this parable, and he says, listen, instead go to the lower seat, sit in the back. And when somebody comes up to you and says, excuse me, but the family's supposed to be up front. You need to move up closer. Be that person. Be that person. uh, Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7 talks about that. And then in 2 Peter 2, verse 10, it says, But chiefly them that walketh after the flesh in in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, 
presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Talking about those presumptuous, false teachers. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, there isn't anything wrong with taking a step back and saying, you know what? I don't need to argue. I don't need to fight. I can let my God take care of it. There isn't anything wrong with that. There isn't anything, um, it doesn't mean we're weak. It doesn't mean we're not smart. It doesn't mean we're not intelligent and that we can't defend our position. Sometimes the wisest thing we can do is step back and just let God take care of it. And that's what Michael did. But these false teachers are not so. They don't behave that way. So go to verse number 10. Not only the example of Michael, but notice the contrast with Michael. Notice verse 10, but these so these false teachers, there's a contrast here. That word but is a contrasting word. But these, teach, but these guys, but these speak evil of those things which they know not. So, so here's something interesting. Here, Jude says, these false teachers, they speak evil. It is literally blaspheme. They blaspheme what they don't know. They don't know. The word know or what they don't know is literally what they've never perceived. They've never experienced. They have no clue what they're talking about, but yet they're always running their mouth. Notice the contrast with Michael, though. Michael is in the battle. Michael is the archangel. Michael knows what he's talking about. He is there. He's in the midst of it. But he steps back and durst not bring a railing accusation. So there is this contrast There is this contrast. These false teachers run their mouths, speak evil of things that they have no idea what they're talking about, but yet Michael the archangel, who's in the middle of this battle, won't say a word. He just pulls back. I'll let the Lord rebuke you, he says. So you have the example of Michael, the contrast of Michael. The third thing I want you to think about is the corruption or the corrupting of themselves. Notice verse 10. But what they know naturally as brute beasts, In those things, they corrupt themselves. So now we get a very interesting idea about what these false teachers do know. What they do now. A couple things here. First of all, they do that which is natural. Notice what it says. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally. What they know naturally naturally. This word naturally is that which, was, that which was acquired or that which is acquired through our senses. We have senses, right? We have touch or feel. We have smell. We have taste. We have hearing. We have seeing. Is there another one? Isn't there seven senses? Six senses? Five senses. Okay, I said them all. I was going to get there eventually. I mean, I, I mean, I knew there wasn't more than seven. Um, but through the five senses, This is what they acquire through their smell, their taste, their ears, their eyes, their hands. This is what they know naturally. This is what comes to them naturally. It would be something like this. It just feels good. Jiminy Cricket, let your conscience be your guide. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Here's another dangerous phrase. I think... Who cares what you think? I hear Christians say that all the time about this book. I think, or, well, it means this to me. Now, I understand the application of Scripture, and I understand biblical principle and the way those can be applied in different things, but we have to be really careful that we don't try to make this say what we think it says, but rather we let it say what it does say. 
We need to be very careful about that. These false teachers, they could care less. They're all about their experience. They're all about their senses and how they feel and what they, what they crave naturally, naturally. Not only do they, do they know that which is natural to them, but notice this, as brute beasts, as brute beasts, the word brute means that which is absurd or without reason, and the word beast is literally a living thing or something without a soul. Do you realize in creation, God created the earth, the animals, he created all that, and then on the sixth day he creates man. But in man, he breathes in him a living soul. And that right there is what separates us from everything else. I'm sorry, but all dogs don't go to heaven, okay? They just, they don't, okay? Animals die, they go in the ground, and they're gone. They don't have a soul. They don't have a soul. So, here, these false teachers behave like animals. Literally, they behave as if they were not created in the image of God. They behave like animals. And you know what scares me is the other day, our beloved governor, his royal excellency, signed a, um, oh, what is it? Um, it's a conversion therapy bill. It's the same bill that Paul Chapel has been online creating videos and everything because they were trying to pass it in California. And pretty much, from what I understand of the one in California, I haven't seen the one here in Colorado, but for, from what I understand, the one in California, you cannot be paid to counsel somebody that they're not a girl because they're actually a boy or they're not a boy because they're actually a girl. You cannot be paid to counsel somebody to convert them. And our our governor just signed that bill in california the fear was well what about the bible can you sell bibles because the bible if you read it's going to be conversion therapy that's just what it does what if you pay for a conference for example we're going to california for a conference and if if i if we pay to go to that conference i'm sitting there and the preacher gets up and he gets a stipend for preaching at that conference and he gets up and says homosexuality is wrong and if you're a boy god created you if he goes if he says that what's going to happen how does that play out legally and so there are a lot of questions. Well, our governor just, just uh, passed that. We have the, the whole CSHE, the Comprehensive Sexual Health Education thing that's going through our, our, our uh, state right now. And ladies and gentlemen, our government is teaching our kids to act like animals. And that's what we're getting. We're getting kids who behave like brute beasts. And unfortunately, these false teachers, these people who have crept in unawares into the church, behave the same way. They behave the exact same way. And they behave like animals. How do you know that about a person? How do you know? I mean, if, if, you know, if a family walked in and they look great and the guy's in a suit and tie and the mom's in a dress and the kids are all clean and their hair's combed and they sit down, you know, like maybe they're horrible Baptists and they sit on the front row. I'm sorry, no offense. But anyway... But how do you know? How do you know? The truth is, is many times we don't know. Sometimes you just have to pay attention. You have to listen to the words that come out of their mouth. You have to listen to what they talk about or how they talk about certain people and certain things. And you just have to pay attention. You have to be careful. You have to be careful. 
Let me say this. Our, our government, our school system is destroying our kids. It's, it's destroying our kids. Which brings me to the last part of verse number 10. So they behave naturally as brute beasts. And notice this. In those things, they corrupt themselves. Here's the interesting thing about this. This corrupt themselves is a passive word. It's being done to them. And here's the point. The behavior that they are engaged in has natural built-in consequences. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the problem with a lot of these bills and a lot of the things that our, our, our state, our country is allowing. They are creating things that naturally destroy they naturally destroy. And so when they put these things into place in our school system and they start teaching it to fourth graders, fifth graders, sixth graders, what was it, Oregon? Um, they tried to put that, that education into like fourth or fifth grade. Um, there's a family now in Oregon that is suing a school system because the school told their son that he was a girl and that he was supposed to be a girl. And now that mom and dad is suing the school system because they didn't talk to the parents. There was no counseling. There was nothing. They, these teachers just told that kid he was a girl. And what they are doing is they are creating behaviors and teachings, ladies and gentlemen, that just naturally destroy. It is inherent to it. It just destroys. It is a destructive behavior. And so through these choices, through the choices that these false teachers make, they are naturally being destroyed by their choices. They're being corrupted. And they don't even realize it. Um, my wife and I sat and counseled a young lady who was involved in some extremely risky moral behavior. And um, this is what she told my wife and I. She said, I'm just afraid that eventually God's gonna give me a baby. And man, my, the top of my head just hit the ceiling. And I looked at that girl, and I, I am usually a very composed, easygoing, kind, gentle person. But I, I looked at that girl, and I, this is what I told her. I said, don't you blame God for what he naturally created. That baby is not a punishment that baby is not a consequence. That is the natural result of your choices. Don't make it that God's punishing you. That's the choice you made, and that's the result. That's what happens. Duh. And she just kind of looked at me. I said, don't you blame God for your choices. I said, that's on you. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what these people are doing. They are behaved in risky behaviors that have natural consequences. Natural consequences. So the corruption of themselves. You have the example of Michael. You have the contrast with Michael. You have the corruption of themselves. And the last thing I want you to think about is in verse 11, and that's the condemnation of their behavior. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, woe unto them! Exclamation point. Who was the guy, Victor Borg or whatever, that used to do the punctuation? The shh. Did you guys ever see those? How many of you have seen that before? It's all old people. Hey, I raised my hand. I raised my hand. Jude says, woe unto them. And ladies and gentlemen, this woe is an expression of pain or displeasure. When, when, when you hit your, well, maybe I shouldn't use that example. I don't want to know what you say. But anyway, if you, if you were to touch a, a burner or, um, man, working in our house, there's, there's been several times where I've shocked myself working on electrical. I hate working on electrical, and I despise shocking myself. 
but you shock yourself, what do you do? Whoa, ouch, whoo, whatever, whatever it is. You have some reaction to hitting your, your finger with a, with a hammer, to shocking yourself, cutting yourself, whatever it might be. We, we respond, and that's the kind of response here that, Joel, that Jude has, and he's like, whoa, unto you. Ouch unto you. This is a, this is a, um, this is a condemning phrase. This is a yield. This is a stop sign. This is a, hey, you need to think about your behavior. Woe unto you. There is condemnation coming. There are consequences to your actions. But his consequences, it, it's interesting how he describes this. In verse 11, he says, woe unto them for so now listen, the word for is a purpose word or explains the woe. What is, what is this warning for, Jude? Why do they need to be careful? What's the woe unto them for? For they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Well, that's great. Now we have three Old Testament examples of what they've done. And I want to explain, I want to, explain to you what I think Jude meant by these, excuse me, real quick, and then we'll be done. First of all, Cain. Cain is what I call a rejection of righteousness. I believe that these teachers have been confronted with truth. They've seen the truth. It's been given to them, and they have rejected it because they've gone in the way of Cain. In 1 John 3, 12, the Bible says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, and wherefore slew him because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, if you remember in Genesis chapter four, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel bring a sacrifice to God. God, it says, um, uh, takes pleasure. It's not the word. I don't remember what the word is now. Respect. He has respect unto the offering of Abel, but not to Cain. And the Bible says that Cain was wroth. Ladies and gentlemen, that wroth is not, oh man, I'm just, I'm bummed out. It's not that. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a violent boiling over rage. He is angry. And God comes to him and he, says, he asks him what the matter. He says, why is thy countenance fallen? And God asks him an interesting question. And it's this. God asks Cain, asks Cain, he says, if thou doest well, will you not be accepted? And ladies and gentlemen, the obvious answer is yes. If you do well at work and you do your job, aren't you accepted of your, of your boss and your coworkers? More than likely, yes. If you're a student and you go to school and you do your homework and you pass your tests and you listen and you obey your teachers and you do what you're supposed to do, are you not accepted? Yes. Cain, if you bring a proper sacrifice, will you not be accepted? Cain, if you do what's asked of you, will you not be accepted? Yes. And ladies and gentlemen, Cain made the wrong choice. Instead of bringing what is acceptable, Cain continued in his rage and he killed his brother and was cursed forever for it. And ladies and gentlemen, I believe that these people right here have been confronted with truth, they've been confronted with righteousness, and they've rejected it. They said, no, I'm going to live after my natural brute beast instincts and do what I want. So they've rejected righteousness. And I think these kind of stair steps. I think they kind of stair-step. First, you have Cain, who rejected righteousness, but second, you have Balaam. Balaam. And they have ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. What's really interesting is this ran greedily literally means they have poured themselves out. They have emptied themselves. 
And ladies and gentlemen, what these people have done is they have emptied themselves of any kind of moral code. They've emptied themselves of any kind of character. They've emptied themselves of any kind of principle, conviction, or anything that is righteous for gain. And what has happened is they will believe anything, they will preach anything, they'll teach anything, they'll do anything they can for their own advancement. And that's what Balaam was. That's who Balaam was. Remember Balaam in the Old Testament? You can go to Numbers 22, uh, 23, and 24. We're not gonna go there now. But if you were to go there, you would find the story of Balaam. And remember the king, what was it, Balak? Balak, I think it was Balak. Balak came to Balaam, and he wanted him to curse Israel. And remember, and he tried, and he couldn't, and he tried, and he couldn't. And then finally he was going, and he was on his donkey, and his donkey spoke to him. Man, talk about wanting to be a fly on the wall. Balaam, how stupid are you? But listen, ladies and gentlemen, Balaam was so empty of principle. Balaam was so empty of any kind of conviction that Balaam, all he could think about was his own greed, his own gain, and that's all that mattered to him. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, it says, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. He was so empty of any kind of righteousness or principle that literally he was willing to do anything for any kind of gain. And ladies and gentlemen, that's how these false teachers are. They could care less about what's right or wrong as long as their pockets are filled and their needs are met and they have what they want and their cravings and their carnality is satisfied. They could care less about anything that's right or wrong. I was thinking about this idea in connection with pastor's sermon this morning. And you know, it takes... I, I, listen, I sat in a deacon's meeting and I watched pretty much seven deacons or so. Five, six, seven deacons, I don't know. A pastor simply made a comment about giving in his sermon. And I watched every one of those deacons practically put their finger in that man's chest and tell him he didn't need to preach on giving ever again. And you do, you ruffle feathers when you talk about giving. You really do. And people get upset when you preach on giving. But you know, I thought about an, uh, I had an interesting thought this afternoon, and it was simply this. Paul, in Philippians chapter four, verses 15, 16, and 17, says this. He says, now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, ye, once, ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Now listen to verse 17. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Paul, writing to the Philippians, commented on their giving to his needs and his desire was not that he would have the gift or that he would get something from them, but that the fruit the blessing of God would be added to their account. And ladies and gentlemen, that's really the big difference. The big difference is the heart, the motive for the, for the message, the, the motive for the, for the giving, or for the preaching on giving. Praise the Lord, you have a pastor who would love to see you give out of your need, like the Corinthians did, so that God can bless and that God, that fruit from the Lord will be added to your account. 
But ladies and gentlemen, these, these false teachers, direct opposite. It was all about me, 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 me. Get, 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 get. I don't care who I hurt. I don't care who, it, who, who, who has the consequence from this. I don't care what happens as long as I have what I want. And that's the way these false teachers were. They were greedy. They emptied themselves so that they could run after whatever it is that they wanted. And then the last one, real quick there. And perished in the gainsaying of Korah. It's interesting, that word perished is the same word that is found in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed him but should not perish. It means to die, to be annihilated, to be destroyed, to be ruined. It, it means to no longer exist, um, to perish. These people perished in the gainsaying of Korah. What is gainsaying? Literally, it is rebellion. It is rebellion. So with Cain, we had a rejection of righteousness. With Balaam, we have a regard for reward. And then with Korah, we have a rebellion of resistance. This gainsaying, you know, there are some people, they rebel and they're quiet about it. You'll never know. They'll rebel, it's all inward or it's behind closed doors, and, and it's just as horrible, but, but, but you'll never really know it. Then there's the biker gang dude who's just a rebel, and you see it. There are some people who are just open about it. They're in your face, and they're gonna yell at you, they're gonna cuss at you, they're gonna put their finger in, their, in your chest, and they're just, gonna, they're just gonna let you know about it. That was Korah. You remember the story of Korah, number 16? Um, they, they, came, they, they got a certain number of leaders, influential men. The sons of the family of Korah got together, and they got this, this, this gang together to come against Moses and Aaron, and they were griping and complaining, and what God do? The Bible says that the ground opened up, and the sons of Korah and all their little uh, minions were swallowed up alive with their families, their children, their wives, and all their belongings, and the earth closed. And they were just gone. Once again, a fly on the wall. Could you imagine being there? Somebody make that movie. I wanna see that movie. I mean, man, could you imagine what that day was like when they met that morning, Moses and Aaron are on one side, Korah and them are on the other side, the ground opens up, they're all gone, the ground closes, and everybody goes, what just happened? Could you imagine everybody stepping back? Like, don't get any closer to them, that side. Don't, don't hang out with those people. Don't go over there. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the, the ruin, the destruction of these false teachers will be the same way. It'll just happen, and they'll be gone. But there is a rebellion of resistance. It is a, re a rebel in your face. It's open obstinance. They are just out there. They're in your face. They're against everything. They have something negative to say about everything. It is a rebellion of resistance. These false teachers. You have the example of Michael. Michael, stepping back and saying, the Lord take care of it. But not so. These guys, you have their contrast with Michael. They just spout off at the mouth, constantly blaspheming or slandering things that they have no idea about. Their corruption, they do what is natural, they behave like animals, and honestly, they're destroying themselves. And then you have the condemnation of their behavior. A rejection of righteousness, a regard for reward, and a rebellion of resistance. These false teachers. May our guard be up. May we, listen, don't assume, don't take anything for granted. Always have your guard up. Always have your guard up. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the warnings in your word. Lord, I pray that you'd bless, uh, bless our week. 
And I pray that you'd be honored and glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen.